This week on the Dragzine Podcast, bracket racer and sportsman icon Luke Bogacki joins us to talk about, of course, bracket racing and kind of his take on what it takes to be a winner. So, pull those belts tight. Get ready to put in the beams. The Dragzine Podcast starts now. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week, Luke Bogaki stops by and kind of get his perspective on a lot of things on what it takes to be an elite level bracket racer and kind of the just, you know, what makes bracket racing awesome. It's a, it's a really fun conversation that I think a lot of our, our listeners are going to be able to uh, to really kind of dig into. So without further ado, let's get this drag racing party started. All right. My guest this week on the Drag Zine podcast is sportsman racer and podcast host Luke Bogaki. What's going on, Luke? Brian, man, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's just like we were talking about there. You know, instead of butchering the last name, I smashed the first name there. <laughs> yeah, people people mispronounce Bogaki all the time. Usually, they get Luke right. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I told you, I'm really good at screwing stuff up, and you know, we just kind of just you know roll with it here. And it's you know, it's like I said, it's just a fun part of the sport, right? Absolutely. As a uh, as a fellow podcast host, I'm very used to screwing things up and just keep moving forward so yeah i get it yeah yeah you just you got <laughs> as long as it's not a catastrophic like really bad error you just roll with it be like eh, it, it, it's like a, it's like a music and it, as long as you start together and end together the middle takes care of itself absolutely as uh, as bad as as jed and i may be at podcasting we're way worse at editing so yeah we just just let it flow <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's like any you know it's a lot like racing just you know you, you react to what happens plan for the best and you know usually everything kind of works out okay right 100 percent. all you can do yeah no doubt yeah and it's you know it I, I like having a lot of different people on the show with different genres different areas of racing because drag racing is so broad and a lot of what I do, you know, we, we do a lot in the heads up world, you know, NHRA, everything in, it drags in just because it's so big. But when it comes down to it, I have so much respect for bracket racers because of the simple fact that they are surgeons with a gas pedal, plain and simple. Hmm. No question. There is a uh, there is a, a degree in uh, of precision in what we do in, in bracket racing that is, is goes beyond normal for sure <laughs> that that's a good way to put it and to that point i uh, i actually just recently got introduced to your show and just thumbing through the the guest list like the um the broad variety of uh drag racers that and and people involved in the sport that you have on the show is really cool i've only had the chance to listen to a handful but i, I really like what you guys are doing here I appreciate it for sure. And, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, with the, the podcast that you and Jed did, you, you guys do, I listened to that a few times. And, it, again, it's something like that where it's, you know, what, with what you guys do is specializing in sportsman racing. I know a lot of guys that listen to it just because it's tied directly to that. And there's so much to the bracket racing end of things that people just – a lot of heads-up guys don't understand, I think, that it's more than just – putting some shoe polish on a car it's it, it's a precision strike it's not like carpet bombing with horsepower you know you have to have that car so repeatable and it's it's really amazing to watch yeah and that's our that's our audience like like you said the the bracket racing scene and i guess you could expand that into to all of sportsman racing it's it's a cult following you know what i mean it's a small niche when you look at the big picture, but people that are really, really passionate and like anything, um, the more that you get into it, the more you realize how nuanced it is and how, I mean, you can literally spend a lifetime just trying to figure out all the fine details, but yeah. Oh yeah. The fine details of it. And the thing I found is a lot of bracket racers are very, intelligent when it comes to their vehicles and cars to how to make it work because you know you know i'm a bracket racer myself when i when i well i claim to be and try to be at times but you know <laughs> it, it comes down to you doing a lot of the work yourself and you have to know your machine so they're very very knowledgeable people just i think across the entire board of drag racing because you have to be yeah i think by and large and that's <clears throat> i don't want to say that that's changing um there's been a 
the, the dynamic in, in bracket racing since I started has, has changed pretty significantly because not that there are still not people that do everything 100% themselves, right? There are. But when I started, that was really the only way to do it, right? You, you had to figure everything out, trial and error, and you had really, really innovative people going in a lot of different directions to, to try to achieve the same goal. But then I guess, like anything, there were people that really kind of figured it out, and then they started figuring out a way to monetize that and, and selling products and, and advancing technology to the point where now you can almost, in a lot of cases, have a store-bought combination that's pretty freaking good that you don't have as many racers that are so in-depth into the mechanical details of understanding exactly how it works they just know like this is all the stuff and if i put it together then it should run the same thing every time like that part of it has come so far and the i don't want to say the knowledge of racers has decreased but that level of everybody in the pits being so in tune with their specific combination Maybe that's just my impression, but I think that's changed pretty significantly over the 30 years or so that I've been involved. I, I think I can see that to a point, but at the same time, you know, I, I've seen this time and time again that just because you have the pocketbook to buy all the best toys doesn't mean you're going to get the same results. And that, to me, is what separates bracket racing from, you know, the pure muscle of heads up racing. Because in the end, as a driver, you still have to let go of the button and you still have to make the decision at the top end. The car might be able to do what it's going to do. But if you don't make the right calls, you know, it, a tool's worthless without the knowledge, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just the, the parody end of it has come so far because let's say, let's say I'm growing up at, uh, at Texas Raceway 30 years ago and, I, and that is such a cool part of my upbringing just like being where I, growing up where i did at the time that i did and had no idea in the moment i just thought it was normal i thought everywhere in the country if you go out on saturday night you watch racers like scotty and edmund richardson and jeff and jeremy heffler and tommy phillips and frank kahootek you know these icons of the sport they would converge on my home track every weekend that they were home and um but being a part of that and watching specifically even before I got to racing the the domination. And if you go back years prior to that, it was Jeff and Jeremy's father, Jerry Heffler. It was um, Scotty and Edmund's father, uh, Eddie. And it was uh, a guy named uh, Jimmy Paul. Some, some of the hardcore sportsman racers remember him, his father, Charles. Like the way that everybody told the story at four cars every week, this is – probably in the seventies at four cars every week. It's three of them and somebody every week. Like they just had it figured out. They dominated. They, you know, were a step ahead of the competition and they were obviously the best drivers at the track and they, and they paid the most attention to detail. We'll take that today. And if you have a field of a hundred cars, the quote unquote best three drivers, they still stand out, but it's almost never going to be their three of the last four. You know, like there might be one of them there fairly consistently, you know, and that one rotates, but there's so much more parity in, in, in technology and equipment and just the level of racers and knowledge has come so much farther that you just don't see that domination like you used to in, in our niche of the sport. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I've, I've watched, you all know, see clips of some of these race, you know, the, the big money bracket races put up online and you also see it as well, I think, in some of the class racing, you know, at NHRA. But, it, dude, it's brutal. It's just <laughs> – you see some of these guys – you know, when you see two people go double O, it's like, oh, this – you just – you watch it all unfold, double O and almost dead on, and you're having to go out like three or four numbers to just – to find a winner. That's just – man, that ain't right. That's upsetting. <laughs> Oh, and it's become so common. You know, it, it, I, I remember not that long ago, if you laid down like a sub 10 package, which is, you know, like say 004 on the tree and dead on the dial in with a five and you didn't win, that was a really bad beat. You're like, oh man, you know, like that should never happen. And now it's, I mean, those, those runs should still win, but it's not 
uncommon. You know what I mean? You'll have a lot of tickets throughout the year where, man, I did everything that I wanted to do and it just didn't quite work out. And one of the, one of my things that I always go back to is I, I'm a big process over results guy. And so you, you obviously you just try to keep making good runs and keep making good runs. But I'm one that I don't believe that like winning close races is necessarily a skill. You have so many races that are decided by less than a thousandth of a second, one, two thousandths of a second. Like it's, it, it's um, skillful and notable to put yourself in a position to, to be in those close races, but whether or not the wind light comes on, like that's a lot of happenstance at that level. You're really splitting hairs. And it, it obviously works both ways. A, a few years ago when I won the, the Spring Fling Million at Vegas, I had three rounds of the nine that were decided by a thousandth of a second or less, including the final. And obviously that just all fell into place my way. And if we ran, if you gave me 10 more shots at those three rounds, like those wind lights don't come on that often. You know what I mean? Or I split them at best. And it obviously goes the other way too. I mean, there's, I could look back at several rounds just from last season that were triple zero or, you know, a thousandth or two that went the other way. And I just, you get, it's so easy to define ourselves by results only, but man, results are so fickle when the the margin is that thin. Oh yeah. It's, you run into that definitely in bracket racing these days a whole lot more. And I've been on, you know, as a crew guy on a heads up car, you know, you get that time slip, you just look at it and you're like, seriously, you know, it's like, <laughs> sure. you know, it's, you know, you did everything you could do and you just try to find a way to, uh, I guess to rationalize, you're like, well, at least I hope we didn't blow it up and you just go back to the trailer and you, you're like, <laughs> we'll live the fight another day. Sure. And, you know, you kind of touched on something there I wanted to talk with you about, and I've had a few, you know, hardcore bracket racers on here and it's about these big money races and what it's like to, to hit those races. You know, from your perspective, what was it like to, you know, what's it like to win the million? You know, what's, you know, is it just like on, you know, on your edge of nerves all day? Do you do something different at one of those races? Like, you know, how do you, how do you win at something like that? Oh, that's such a loaded question. And I don't think anybody necessarily has it figured out. Maybe, uh, maybe Verdi, you know, cause yeah. he seems to, and Jeff Rooks is another one, like doesn't race very often comes to that race and just shows out every time that he comes. It's, it's incredible. Um, I, I think the, the, the answer, so to speak, which it seems oversimplified and it's so much easier said than done, but I think the, the majority of racers that really excel under that pressure are the ones that are able to approach it, you know, knowing that there's a hundred thousand dollars on the line in one particular round, no differently than they would racing for $500 at their home track on a Saturday night. And like I say, easy to say more difficult to do, but in reality, we're doing the exact same thing. It's just a matter of whether or not you can compartmentalize that in your mind and, and realize like, yes, this is the biggest stakes or the most eyeballs or whatever on me ever. But in order to do my job, I don't, I don't really, nothing different is required of me. Like I've done this a thousand times or in my case, probably 10,000 times, you know, um, and, and just trying to go out and, and be that almost robotic machine now what I, one thing that that helps me and and i actually my my i feel like my perspective on this has come a long long way because like anyone i guess um you know, i say starting out but really for the for a, a long period of my career there was like this chip on my shoulder and i've got to prove myself and in order to prove myself i've got to win these huge events and it was more about that than even the money involved like obviously you you, you want to win the money especially when you're quote-unquote racing for a living but it was more about the respect and kind of you know, that elusive idea of, of proving yourself proving myself in my case and um i I think I, at some point I started to like turn a corner. It seems like too abrupt a term, but it's the idea of bringing some gratitude into it and just realizing like how cool this is. Cause I, I distinctly remember that probably the two biggest 
moments in my racing career were um, I, I won Super Comp at the U.S. Nationals in um, in 2015, and then obviously the the Spring Fling Million. And in both instances, I remember um, very intentionally like taking a moment. And the the million, I can still picture it to this day. Uh, I'm running Michael Pennington, friend of mine, final round. The the money has been decided. Like we're we're still the purse has been redistributed. We're still racing for a ton of money in the final. But I'm not going to be upset if I lose, right? <laughs> like we're both we're both walking out there with a lot of money, and. I just remember, you know, there there is still that that pressure, that tension. This is probably a once in a lifetime opportunity. But I remember pulling up to the ready line, and it's surreal because it's Vegas, and you've got the the mountain backdrop in front of you. And I'm looking up at at the at the ready line, and it's Peter Biondo, you know, somebody that I've always idolized, um, is going to wave me into the water. And the cool thing about really any of those really big bracket races, any of the millions especially, is that while we don't have a lot of spectators on hand, every racer is there on the fence, like wants to see who wins. So my, my peers are watching and it's live streaming, everything like that. And I just remember taking a minute to just breathe that all in and think, this is freaking awesome. Like this is literally the reason that I do this. And no matter what happens in the next... 60 seconds someday uh, i'm gonna sit on my back porch in a rocker and tell my grandkids about this moment like this is awesome and just kind of allow myself that moment to to breathe that in and I, I feel like it it put a little bit of perspective on it indy was largely the same way for different reasons um i, I grew up in a in a racing family and my father always talked about indie with this reverence and i didn't i didn't get it i was like oh, that doesn't really sound like that much fun like you're there for a week to run one race and he's telling me about you know he all of his stories were changing motors in the uh, drive-in parking lot across the street or rebuilding transmissions in the bathtub at the motel and all of it i'm like that doesn't sound like a lot of fun and he's just talking about it with this reverence he's like no you you don't understand it's indie and um and I even kind of avoided Indy for a lot of years because there's always a big bracket race on Labor Day weekend. Like I could do better things with my time. And then uh, I finally went and like the first year I didn't do any good, but I, I got it. I'm like, Oh, I, I see like, this is different. This atmosphere is really cool. And I don't know, I, I guess I would put them kind of on the same plane. Like the, the late rounds of the million um, is probably the only thing that I've ever done in racing that compares to that atmosphere of monday at indy that's pretty awesome for for different reasons you know i mean the stands are packed i, I remember the I, i've raced on monday at indy three times only one at once but the first time i remember pulling up to the ready line and i looked to my left and see mario andretti i looked to my right and see tony stewart and i'm like what in the world am i doing here you know I mean, yeah, just, like, huh. that moment is pretty cool yeah you know <laughs> That that's definitely you know you, you paint a really really awesome picture with all of that, and I, I think you know to kind of to to circle back to the question as well, it, it ties to both Indy and those big money races, is that you need to treat it like when it comes to doing your job, it's got to be another day at the job, and that seems to be what I've heard from other racers too, is that you don't like the great ones don't get too caught up in the moment you appreciate it but you know when it comes time to you know do the last tug on the belt and snap that visor down you know it all melts away right no and that's the thing i i think as long as you've been because i'm a big routine person in all walks of life but specifically in racing and like a, a performance routine and so what i what I really uh, push towards say like our members of this is bracket racing elite or our readers on this is bracket racing is to really be intentional about setting that routine and kind of think through it. Like everything that is done is done for a reason. There's no wasted movement. And at the same time, you, your routine gets really regimented where you're essentially doing the same thing run after run after run after run. And once you build that in, like that's the, the elixir so to speak to make 
because absolutely, you know, like I'm at the ready line or pulling into the water in those huge moments and you're not oblivious to it. You realize like this is a huge moment. You know, like I said, I'm going to tell my grandkids about this. But for me, it's really when the car starts, you pull it into gear or you start the burnout, like it just triggers that routine and you realize this is the same thing that I've done thousands of times. And I don't want to say like you don't ever think about the stakes, but you just realize like there's a comfort in, okay, like I've done this before and, and falling into that routine, I think is key to, you know, what do you want to call it? Blocking out the the pressure or just, you know, focusing on the moment. Yeah. And I see that a lot, you know, being on the starting line, taking pictures and you, you notice things like that. You notice drivers that have certain routines and you know what they're going to do. And you know that like, you know, in, in the heads up world, Stevie fast before he gets ready to, you know, to really put the car into the beams, he's going to give that thing a couple throttle wraps, you know, <laughs> you know that so-and-so is going to do a couple things inside the car and slap their visor down. You know what their cruise guy's going to do. And it's kind of like you fall into that routine and it's what puts you in that mindset to kind of make everything kind of happen and I've read that before and you know that's something that even at my own level of racing it's something that I do myself is that you know I got my you know once I'm done with the burnout I do my last couple things and then you just pull forward and do what you got to do the other lane that car could be putting on a disco show I don't care I'm, (laughs) I'm doing what's going on in my lane they could sit there in the you know at the pre-stage beam for 25 minutes I'm gonna do what I got to do to make it happen yeah, 100%. And you hit on it. Like, that's not only important at the, the highest level. Like, that, that's important to that progress of being becoming the best version of yourself at any level of racing. And kind of back to your main question, I can't take credit for this. This is actually the, the words of uh, one of our This Is Bracket Racing Elite members uh, out of uh, Michigan. His name is Eric Paterka. But... Uh, because everybody says, no, the, the trick is to, to approach that final round like it was a time trial. And I had never heard this before, but he flipped it. And he's like, no, 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 The trick is not to approach the final like it's the time trial. It's to approach the time trial like it's the final round and maintain that intensity at every time you stage. And he's 100% right. Like that's, that's the better way to, to frame that. Yeah, you know, you train how you, you know, want the outcome to be in anything. You know, when I when I wrestled in high school, you 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 drilled like you wanted it to, you know, like it was in a match. So you're ready for it. When you go out shooting firearms, you train like the the situation's going to be in, you know, if you're actually in danger and it just it ingrains that muscle memory in you and it really makes, you know, when it comes to doing the job that much easier. 100%. That's, I don't, I won't say that I like, um, invented or came up with the, the idea of, um, of, of practice at a high level, but I, I think I've helped through this as bracket racing, make it a little bit more mainstream, but 100%, like thanks to the, the developments in technology, mainly through Portature, that's who we use with, I, I have a, a full-size practice tree, obviously, with LED bulbs, and we actually, through their system, wire it right into the race car, and I practice in the car, um, and I take it to the extreme. Like, I suit up, I strap in, and so you get the, the, the physical aspect of you're actually pulling the car into gear, you're going through your routine, the steering wheel and the button, you know, instead of just holding a, a handheld button, practicing on your couch, like, you're actually getting the, the, the physical reps. And then on top of that, what we try to do is create, you know, it's obviously, it's all in your mind, it's individual challenges that at least in some ways replicate some of the pressures, some of the anxiety, some of the emotion that actually comes with real competition. And that, I mean, I really dove into that probably eight or 10 years ago. And the results that I saw from that, not immediate, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a process certainly, but I think that that probably made the biggest impact in my on-track performance, that real dedication to, it's no different than, you know, Steph Curry putting up whatever, 3,000 shots a day or whatever you read about, you know, in the off season, it, it, getting those reps in does make a difference. And kind of, you know, we'll pivot off of that a little bit. You know, we, we talked about, you know, big, big money bracket racing and whatnot. And something that I've actually really started to follow a little bit more 
is uh, I've always been a huge fan of stock and super stock racing. Like when I mm. when I go to cover a national event or if I'm just going as a civilian just to hang out, you can be for sure when stock and super stock are on the track, I'm in the stands watching. So between that and then start watching more of Super Gas, Super Comp, Super Street, and whatnot, even you know Comp Eliminator as a whole, we could do a whole show about that weird rocket science form of drag. And we racing. still wouldn't understand it. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> I try to explain it to people, and they'll look at you and go, "What?" I'm like, just trust me. It, it, it's fun, and it costs a lot of money. But yes, you know the the dot ninety racing started to really fascinate me, especially watching it you know, on NHRA.TV, just it like, it's everybody trying to do a simple task, but you're doing, it's like you're killing ants with a thermonuclear device. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it, it. It blows my mind to watch these cars that should be running like two to three seconds faster than what they are with these engine packages. And these guys have these things running them like, 890 or 990 out to a number to me it's fascinating to watch it is and to your point like i i think most spectators would agree obviously top sportsman top dragster and and to your point stock and super stock i think are more fun classes to watch are probably easier classes to understand and uh you kind of take that that cult following of sportsman drag racing and, and niche it down significantly further into the super classes. But the people that have done it are the people that, you know, like you that to, to, to try to understand some of the nuance to it. It's fascinating. And I love the challenge of 90 racing um, and it not to people can take that the wrong way and saying it's not as if bracket racing is easy by any stretch of the imagination right we just talked about so many races that are sub 10 package to sub 10 package with a thousandth or two second discrepancy in, in the margin of victory when you take it to 90 racing there's just so many more variables because a, you double the length of the racetrack. Most of our big dollar bracket races now are eighth mile. So um, there's more variable. You know, it just makes sense if you're on the track for nine seconds rather than four seconds. Like there's more stuff that can go wrong, right? And and weather and track and everything else affects you more. And then just the idea that rather than picking your own dial in, it's set for you. And you got to figure out a way to get your car to that number based on the conditions that are obviously always changing. And to your point, the idea that now the average super comp, super gas car is probably capable of going a second and a half to two seconds faster than the index. So we're slowing them down with throttle stops, which I, I get that makes it less appealing to watch, you know, because cars take off and then you take the power away and they come back. But that idea of, like you said, no, we're going to take this 690 car and make it go 890 with a two this time around. And we haven't been on the racetrack in 24 hours, which is not uncommon, you know, at NHRA events. Like I just love the challenge of that because I feel like maybe it's because I feel like it's kind of right in my wheelhouse to some extent, but I love the challenge of it because I feel like it, 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 it exemplifies the difference between the, experienced racer the inexperienced racer the um the completely well prepared versus kind of fly by night it exemplifies the difference between the great finish line driver and the average finish line driver and probably more than anything specifically on those those long waits and the pressure situations i think it really brings to light the discrepancy between the confident and the unconfident and that I, I just love all of those challenges coming together in one. Uh, if, they, if I had to pick the, the, the prize money in super comp and super gas is nowhere near commensurate to what's available in eighth mile bracket racing right now, at least. Um, but if you're just talking about when you put on the helmet, which one's more fun for me, it's no contest. The quarter mile race and 90 racing is more fun just because there is so much more variable and so much more challenge to it. Oh, yeah. It's not something that, you know, everybody can just – I'm not going to – it's going to sound kind of, I guess, off-putting to say this. It's not something anybody can just show up and win at, you know. No, and that's probably part of the problem with that 
you know, I mean, th- that type of racing and its popularity. But you're absolutely right. I mean, like you said, I- I've seen instances where I'm at a race and they'll tell the sportsman racers, all right, so-and-so, you're done till, you know, tomorrow. And you know well, looking at the weather forecast, that conditions are going to be a complete 180 than what they got their test hits in. And then at that point, the drivers that aren't panicking are the guys that have data have done it right. Sure. The guys that haven't, they're going to be sitting in those lanes going, I wonder what this thing's going to do when I let go of the button. <laughs> no, to your point, I, uh, I'm pretty sure I won a national event at Brainerd kind of a few years ago. I think it was in 15. And um, it was, I'm trying to remember which way it was. It was, it was cool on Thursday and fast. And then uh, I think Friday and Saturday it had warmed up and it like significantly slower. I mean, 1500 is two tenths of a second slower. And then Sunday we're down to the semifinals and it's cooled back off. But the main difference was we'd had like a 20 mile an hour headwind on Thursday and Friday. And now we've got a 25 mile an hour direct tailwind. And basically all of the ET from Thursday came back. But all of the weather factors were different. You know, it wasn't like you could just look at it and be like, oh, it's just like Thursday. So, but we had this almost two-tenths of a second swing, and then it all came back over the course of four days. Like, that's just nuts. And you never, you, I shouldn't say never, you rarely ever face that in a bracket race atmosphere. And typically, your bracket race is one day. You know, I mean, you just don't get that type of weather swing. And it's, it is, it's a unique challenge. And I think it's fun. It drives a lot of people crazy, but I, I love that part of it. One of the other classes you mentioned it too, I love to watch is top sportsman, top dragster, because that's the guys that said, so I kind of want a bracket race, but I want to go really, really fast. And doing those two things consistently is that that can drive, that can drive you crazy because those cars are in essence, a lot of them are either baby pro mods, X pro mods, D tune pro mods. And to be able to drive the stripe at that level, that quickness, that's impressive to watch. Oh, you watch like what Lester Johnson does in that shoebox and Top Sportsman, and it's it's incredible. I don't think I would want to do it because it scares me, but watching him do it is so much fun. Oh. Because, I mean, that thing's – I don't know – when he turns it out, who knows what that car is capable of, but I've watched him dial, you know, when you could dial six flat, and it was obvious he was going well faster than that, and driving the finish line just lights out, like, so cool. And that stuff, both of those classes has have come so far. Basically, I mean, just in the time since they've been, you know, nationally points contested classes, what's that, five, six years now? Yeah. Um, and I think I, I said originally, and I, I feel like a, a bit of a prophet, but it just seems so obvious when they put that out, this, you know, it was used to be, you could dial six flat. Now it's obviously up to six ten. specifically in top dragster and top sportsman will get there. It just takes a little bit longer. But when they made it a national class, I said, it's just a matter of time. That's going to be, you might as well call that six flat heads up. Like everybody's going to dial six flat, you know, it's going to be like super comp on, steroids right yeah and it didn't take long that's essentially where we're at what was the bump at indy the, you can't go faster in 610 i think the bump was 622 yeah and that's ridiculous <laughs> lester's car is a five second car i've seen him he was <laughs> testing that thing with a big pro charger on it that he could run in super comp in or in uh top dragster or top sportsman and like i said i think he even broke out and ran a five something with the smaller blower on it with the Gators one year. I mean, that car is just—it's nasty. It's unreal. We have a we have a running joke on the on the podcast that because Lester will change up combinations and and there's probably no need to go as fast as he goes. So there's times you'll see him dialed six forties, six fifties, whatever. And but my running joke is class minimum Lester is by far my favorite. Lester, like I, I like Lester, just dialed six ten. <laughs> yeah, just just put it on there and just let it eat. Just let it let, let it do its thing. And you know, we, we talked before. You know, I'm working on building my own project car, and I thought about you know one of the things I'd like to go is, is do some dot ninety racing. But I'm going to be that guy that I don't think I'm going to run a throttle stop on the car. Probably the dumbest idea on earth. But I'm just going to play my my own game, and you know. Try to run the number as is. Maybe, you know, pull a little timing here and there. But, you know, just 
as God intended, just running out the back door and, you know, hope for the best. That's to me, like the other really fun part of the 90 categories is there's there, I guess there is a common way to do it, but there's no right or wrong way to do it. And there are so many different ways to quote unquote skin that cat. And you see guys like my favorite is, is Tim Nicholson's car out of, out of Kansas. Tim's an old super stock racer that, uh, has a, has a Linko Camaro, um, and bangs it through the gears. And then somewhere, somewhere between eighth mile and thousand foot, the throttle stop comes on and he just coasts to the finish line. And where the majority of the field is going 990 at 160, 170, Tim's going 990 at like 105. And he's been top 10 in the world two out of the last three years, I believe. I mean, does a really good job of it. And Chris Garrettson, similar in, in Supercomp. Like, it's just a, a small block equipped, budget built dragster that with a top end throttle stop. Again, throttle stop, but not coming on to like eighth mile, slowest mile an hour car in the class. And he's had great success. And you see guys doing exactly what you're talking about with cars that don't go considerably faster than the index, doing it with easy plates or pulling timing or whatever and having success that way too. Like that's, and I love seeing that because I feel like specific to the super classes we've all, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone gotten carried away because there is this inherent sense that, yeah, we're all going the same ET, but there's an advantage to having the, the higher mile per hour car. And so what we've got is, Forty, fifty thousand dollar motors and super comp and super gas cars. Which, when you stand back and look at what you're doing, like this is ridiculous. And I, but I love it when someone jumps in with a combination that might be twenty percent of the cost and proves to us that no, like you can be competitive like this too. And that's because ultimately, like that's the basis, the idea behind bracket racing and sportsman racing in general. We tend to lose sight of it, but that's one hundred percent the case. Like what matters. Tommy Phillips, always one of my kind of racing mentors, one of my favorite quotes from him is always, this was applying to superclass racing, but be more concerned about the number on the top scoreboard than the bottom, right? That means the ET is way more important than the mile an hour, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, like I said, with, you know, my, my street car, my street car bill, when I've bracket raced that thing on all motor, it prints tickets easily within a hundredth or so, and I make no changes to it. That's mm-hmm. just kind of like what the stock ECU is kind of feeling with the air. And as long as, you know, the mouth breather behind the steering wheel does his job, the car will run relatively consistently. So in my little simple mind, I'm thinking, well, I could just do that going a little bit quicker and faster and, you know, just have some fun doing it. Sure. My, uh, my original foray into super gas and i really just did it for a handful of races to get some grade points because we were building our our first corvette but i've got a uh, a bracket vega that i've owned for uh, yeah, yeah, 15 yeah. 15 plus years now but it would go 970 something wide open and the, the problem with it was i struggled to get a light on the four tenths tree but i would basically and I, same idea i thought you know this thing's really consistent when i bracket race it so i just run it wide open and then figure out where, you know, for that it was around 1,000 foot. And I did it with a throttle stop and a timer, but I would just sh- basically shut the throttle off and coast across the finish line. I, don't, I didn't ever win a race in Supergas with it, but I had some success, you know, quarterfinals, semifinals. And it was so fun because, like, that was a car that you it, – it looked so out of place in the Supergas staging lanes because it was just a bucket of bolts. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You get Besides these show-winning the cars, and then you got this thing that looks yeah. like, like it's going to give you a tetanus. <laughs> What is this thing doing here? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, let's touch on that for a second, too, because I've seen you posting some pictures of, you know, and whatnot about about that car online through this is bracket racing. You know, what's uh, kind of what was the uh, the thought process and what's going on with that project? Yeah. So my Vega and I go back a ways. Some people actually think it, it goes back a little bit further than it than it actually does. My father, uh, when I was growing up, raced a Vega. It's not the same car. Uh, some people kind of draw that line. It's not. If I could find my dad's old Vega, I would probably try to buy it, but I don't really know where it ended up. Um, and this is actually has always been like a much 
better car. It's an old Don Hardy car. It, it was never a pro stock car, but it ran, it was built for modified in 74. It's a 74 model Vega. And I'm pretty sure that originally it was a, it was a ladder bar, a arm car. And over the years it got front half and back half and probably middle half to some extent. And, and it's now a four length truck car. But, um, I actually, a friend of mine, um, Blake Allen, owned that car in um, 2004, 2005, and was he, he buys and sells a lot of cars, was looking to sell it. I had zero interest in it. What do I want a Vega for it? And I actually won the um, weekend points at a, at a bracket race in Montgomery, and the weekend points winner got a, just a, a base roller solid dragster. It was a Miller uh, dragster. I thought, well, that's cool, but I don't really have anything to do with that. And Blake calls and he's like, I want that drag street. Let's, let's trade for this Vega. God, what do I want a Vega for, you know? And I, uh, so we go back and forth on it and he's got me looking at pictures. He, he ends up getting me fired up about it. So I trade this dragster and $3,000 for the Vega turnkey. It had a little 350 in it. It ran 640s. And uh, so I'm in it for three grand basically because I, I won the car. And I met, I was living in Alabama at the time. I met Blake, uh, I think somewhere in Arkansas to pick up the car and took it to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, like the day that I got it and won a race that paid $3,000. So I'm like, free and clear, right? First time I said it, we had this thing paid for. And from there, the Vega wasn't in great shape when I got it. Like it, it, it had been a race car its whole life and had been beat up pretty good. And uh, that, whatever shape it was in, like I just completely ran it into the ground over the course of the next 10 years. Like I did it zero favors. At one point I decided that I wanted to paint it and I literally did it with Don and Scotch Pride and Krylon and it was flat black for several years. Right. And, um, and it doubled as the, I, I hauled a, a dragster in my Vega around, you know, basically touring the country bracket racing for years and years in a trailer that they didn't both fit in. So the dragster, the dragster would get backed in and hoisted up, and the Vega served as a center support. Like I basically just drove it in until it hit the dragster, and then closed the door and hoped for the best. Right? The roofs caved in. Like it couldn't be more beat up. And it, but it always been good to me. Won a ton of races in it. Always loved the car, and just probably would never get rid of it. So three or four years ago, I decided, you know, this thing's been so good to me. It's so rough. I'm just gonna I'm gonna take a year off and strip it down and, and clean it up. And a year turned into three. <laughs> Granted, I had other stuff to raise, so it wasn't a huge priority. Um, but the project went from like I'm gonna make this presentable to now we it's a show car. Like we went way above and beyond every step of the way, and it, the whole thing really got elevated. Um, friend of mine here, local Sean Johnston, who races with us at, at my home track. I-57 drag strip. Um, he owns a, a paint and body shop called T to G Customs. And so I took it to him to, to get everything fixed up and redone and painted. And I knew that they did nice work, but I never dreamed what they would turn out. Like if you saw the car before to what it is now, it's incredible. And when we got it back from paint, then that elevated the whole game. The, everything else on the car had to be nice enough to match the paint. And now I've got something that like, I'm going to feel a little bit guilty when I take it to the racetrack. Like it's, it's really, really slick and really, really nice. But that three-year project is almost done. I, I, uh, it's at Charlie Stewart race cars now getting uh, headers and full exhaust made. And I hope to debut it in March. So, or re-debut it, I guess, but I couldn't be more excited. Nice, nice. That definitely sounds like it falls underneath the uh, the classic. Well, that escalated quickly. Yes, it did. I, I didn't really have these intentions starting out. Now, I think I have one of the coolest Vegas in the country for whatever that's worth. It's like having the fastest two-barrel 283 Chevy 2. You know what I mean? It's some claim to fame that very few people care about, but it's a really slick Vega. And the, the unfortunate side of it is, while I hope that my, my son's if they get into racing and start racing, like they'll probably start in it and that'll be really cool. But ultimately whenever, um, 
whenever my time comes, they're going to have to dig a really big hole because nobody's ever going to give near what I've got invested in this thing to make it what it is. <laughs> it's what I want. So, right? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It's what I want. Screw everybody else. And it, it kind of gets one of those deals where you almost don't want to sell it because then you don't, you want to be insulted by the offers you might or might not get because you might end up slapping somebody. Yep. Yep. So. You know, it's definitely, it's awesome that you're taking the time to go through and restore that, you know, and getting some laps in it. And that's, uh, it, it was a great story to hear that you're definitely going to to keep it alive and keep it rolling. Yeah, it turned out really, really cool. I can't wait to get it out so everyone else can see it. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously partial, but I'm pretty proud of it. Nice. And something else I want to touch on too, and I've, you know, the, the this is bracket racing deal. I did an article with Justin Lamb and he talked about it too. And we talked about, you know, kind of that that's been something that he thought has kind of elevated the game and of certain racers in, you know, in super class racing and whatnot, you know, what kind of brought that, that whole deal about for you guys? It actually, I, I, I'm referencing uh, Blake Allen quite a bit. My, my same buddy that I originally got the uh, Vega from, I guess it was shortly after that time. It was probably 2006. Um, Blake calls me, and I, and I keep in mind at that time I'm 25 years old. Um, I've had some success bracket racing, and um, he calls and he says, "Hey, I want you to uh, to come out here to my home track and put on a driving school." And I really pushed back on it, and I said, "Blake, that I, I appreciate that. I'm flattered, but there is nobody." in their right mind that is going to pay me to talk about racing. Like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And, uh, and he laughed and kind of let it go. And he called me back a month or two later. He's like, I really think that would work now. Like, I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't think it's a good idea. And, um, then we, he pushed a, a few more times and I kept kind of putting him off. And then finally one day he called me and says, Luke, listen, I've got 12 guys. They've paid me. They want you to, all you got to do is show up and, and, and help them. Okay. Okay. So that's how it started. And I went into that so trepid and so like, man, I'm, I might be the youngest guy in the room and what kind of pushback am I going to get? And can I really help these people? And that group of men and women changed my life. Literally like the, what we did in two days and to watch them really improve you know and, and take some of the the ideas and things that i had said to heart and implement them and their appreciation for it was incredible and it changed my whole perspective on that and that uh, that blossomed into you know doing half a dozen schools like that a year for a couple of years and then eventually turned into this is bracketracing.com i think we actually started the site in 2008 and and grew it and grew it and now we've got this membership community we call it this is bracket racing elite within the site that has just taken off like crazy and we've literally over the course of 10 years helped thousands of racers you know take steps towards becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack we hit a market that i didn't even really realize existed and it's been so gratifying and, and fun along the way um like I say, it's, I never would have dreamed that I would kind of go down this course in, in life or business, but, uh, man, it's been a really cool ride. That's awesome that, you know, you're kind of spreading the knowledge and whatnot, working with people. And I think from a racer standpoint, one of the worst things you could ever, not just say, but think is, oh, I know enough. You never, mm. ever, ever know enough, ever. Yeah. No, the, the game changes so fast that I, I'm, I'm with you. Growth has to be perpetual. Like, it, it never stops. I don't care how um, um, bad you think you are or how good you think you are. Like, there is always more to learn, more to gain. And that's, I mean, that's obviously kind of the the idea behind our site. The, the, I, I'm a firm believer that the the larger your bag of tricks is, the higher level of success you're going to have at anything you do because you never know when you're going to have to dig deep and pull something out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, I think that's what separates a lot of people. You know, the the goods from the greats are the ones that are that that take advantage of things like that, that take the classes and learn because that's again it's continual growth that's going to teach you a lot. For sure. I mean, we kind of relate it back to, to race strategy. Like, 
anybody that's ever won a, a bracket race on any level can implement one specific strategy with some degree of execution, right? Or you'd never win. But what separates the, you know, whoever you want to put on that pedestal, the Justin Lambs, the, the Peter Biondos, the Tommy Phillips from everyone else is that they have the ability, not only the ability to execute multiple strategies or basically any strategy with uh, a high degree of precision, but the willingness to adapt to this certain situation and say, no, if, if I go about it this way, it's going to increase my odds for success. And, and that's the level that we're really trying to get to. Right on. You know, something else I want, you know, we've, we've talked about it too, the, the podcast that you guys do. And it, it was funny when I was trying to like dream up this terrible idea and bring it to my bosses, because that's usually how my ideas come up. I'm like, you know, listen, I've got this really bad idea. It's going to be a lot of fun. Trust me. <laughs> and that's when they'll look at me and be like, I just kind of want to hear what this idiot has to say and we'll go from there. And I gave your guys' podcast as an example just of like one of the different ways to approach this. You know, how did you guys even come up with the idea of doing a sportsman-only podcast to really hit that niche? I guess, um, like I'm a, I've been a longtime podcast consumer and, and listener in, in, a, in a lot of different, you know, venues and, and topics and, and varieties of shows. So I was always kind of drawn to them. And I love the idea that it, it seemed inexpensive and simple, like anybody could do a podcast. And I always thought, maybe I, like, I'd do them, but I don't know what it would be on or what the, the subject matter would be. And uh, Jed and I got to talking about it, and we had like a similar, um, I don't know if frustration is the right word, but seemingly as a racer, every time that I got the opportunity to speak, everything was really cookie cutter. Like I'm going to thank my marketing partners and, and um, you know, really uh, highlight the, the level of competition and you know, grateful for this and that. And it, and it just, I never really felt like I was saying anything new. Right. And you didn't really have the platform to speak about things that you think mattered in the sport without being super controversial and feeling out of place. And Jed, who's obviously, he's a very successful racer in his own right, but he's really made a name for himself nationally behind the microphone. And it's kind of a similar situation. Like, I don't really have the freedom to just share opinions or, or you know, on the direction, the growth of the sport. And we looked at this as an opportunity to kind of step out of that mold and bring some perspective possibly share our own opinions and maybe in some small way influence the direction of our little niche of the sport and connect with people that we just don't really have a, an opportunity to connect with otherwise and i think that was the original idea behind it and um i don't know we we've we've molded it and like anything it's it's a constant iteration but by and large, we just have a lot of fun with the podcast, and it's been a it's been a pretty rewarding experience over the three years or so now that we've done it. See, now that's awesome. That's kind of the way that you know I, I approach this deal was, you know, mostly the majority of what I do is written word, and mm -hmm. you're put honestly when I'm writing a story, you're put into a certain box, whether it's a word count, a story concept, or something like that. And I'll interview people sometimes. An hour long interview sometimes will only see you know, maybe 500 words, but there's so much other cool stuff we talked about. I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. I've got to find a way to, to get this out there, to give people another way to, con you know, not only to consume, because a lot of people do the podcast and Facebook live thing, but to allow guests to, you know, like I said, that there's, there's only three rules on the show. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion and we keep the language at a hard PG 13 outside of that. We'll, we can go to some weird places wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do. <laughs> you know, thankfully it hasn't gotten too weird so far. We've got some really cool stories, but it, it just, I think it, it pulls back that curtain in some aspects a little bit more to let racers hear people talk, you know, hear other racers, hear industry people talk about things you just normally don't get to hear. hundred percent. And it, it, uh, like you're, you're humble enough that you would never recognize it, but it takes a lot of skill as a host and you're really good at it in terms of not necessarily dictating that conversation and adapting to wherever the speaker's going. Like that's not, that's much easier said than done. 
and it's a unique skill set that you have. And I think it's, it makes it a lot of fun to listen. I appreciate that. I, I I just, I let them go. And if I've got something that might help the story or I've got my own little anecdote to toss in there, we'll roll it in there. But otherwise, you know, I've, you know, when I had Warren Johnson on, I was just like, I had to keep reminding myself. I'm like, remember you're running an interview you're running an interview don't just sit there and just listen to him and just like blank out you know it's stuff like that when i talk to dan fletcher just all these other racers it's like you know growing up as a kid around drag racing and whatnot you know i used to go to the track and stand in line to get these people autograph well now i'm on the other side of the rope and this is like how i make my living and sometimes it's kind of a it's kind of a head trip to, to, to get to do this stuff. And it, it I think that kind of maybe plays into the, the insanity that goes on in this show. <laughs> no, I agree a hundred percent. There's times that you just pinch yourself because you, you grew up, you know, idolizing these people. And now it's, it's literally your job to pick their brain. It, it is, it's, uh, it's quite the, uh, it's gotta be quite the full circle experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's awesome for sure. And, you know, the, God forbid the day my editor goes, you've got to talk to John Force. I'm going to be like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be possible for me to be somewhat professional because, you know, to me, you know, on Sundays, a lot of kids growing up, you know, they're watching Joe Montana and football was the religion. Well, at our house, it was the John Force show, you know, how our week went was dictated by how well John did at the track. <laughs> yep. The nice thing about interviewing forces, I think you just turn on the mic and you know, I, I can't imagine you have to do a whole lot, right? Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Literally, he's one of those. I've had a few interviews like that where it's just you turn it on, you give him a question. I will literally just sit here and listen and let him do their thing and, you know, steer it in certain directions. But otherwise, when, you know, when, when you're mining for gold and you find diamonds, you just roll with it and let it go. You know, <laughs> you know, it's. You keep the car somewhat rubber side down, and if, you know, hey, if John wants to start dropping f bombs, who am I to tell John Force what to do? You know, we'll figure out, we'll we'll fix it in post. Just do your thing, John. It, it you know, it just it makes it that much more interesting, and it, it makes it fun. Like I said, it, it's all about just finding ways. You know, I'm a racer and a fan first and foremost, and finding ways to 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 give. You know, I look at it from the aspect of what if I was the person listening. What do I want them to hear? You know, what does my guest have to offer that I could draw out to really make that happen? And that's why I like having, you know, anybody and everybody and, you know, on the show and getting this, like, the perspective of what you brought today with bracket racing. You know, there's going to be people listening to this and it, it's going to help them. And it, Lord knows it might get them to go, hey, you know what, maybe I need to drag drag that old, you know, 13-second car out of the garage and, you know, put some fuel in it make a hit. That's kind of what I hope happens. Oh, I would love nothing more than that. If we could inspire one person to uh, to realize, like, hey, I can just take my daily driver, my hot rod, and 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 take it out and try bracket racing. Like that's that's what it's all about. There's nothing more rewarding and fun than making poor financial decisions based on horsepower. <laughs> you know, when, when you die, who cares about your credit rating? You know, <laughs> I went fast. Let someone else deal with it, right? You know, it's not my problem anymore. Oh, I love it. You know, it's it, it's all about uh ma- having fun while you're making your poor decisions and you know enjoying it. Yeah, you know, that's like I'm teed up to go to to lights out next week, and that's one of the cool things that you know I get to go to all these major different events, all forms of drag racing, and it it really kind of keeps me. I definitely do not get jaded with my job because I get to look at my calendar and see the variety of stuff that I get to go to, and this year I've got big money bracket race either going to cover or participate in. That circle for this year, it's going to happen this year, come hell or high water. Awesome. It's got to be. It's got to be so invigorating to see all the different niches of our sport from so many different angles. Um, like I, I think I told you before we started recording. Like I don't feel like my perspective is very broad because I was brought up doing what I do and then just really tunnel vision, but trying to get really good at it. So I I, I see other forms of racing and i watch the tv shows and i see the live streams but it just feels like almost another world and being able to be in your shoes and kind of be one with all of it has got to be a pretty unique perspective or it would be very unique to me yeah you i've definitely learned how to tread differently in different realms because mm-hmm. you know nhra and how they do things versus when i go to some of these outlaw races like you would it's like i told kyle <laughs> office you would see an nhra official 
die. They would just they would <laughs> die on the spot if they would have seen some of the things I've seen, you know, spectators do on the starting line. They would just they wouldn't know what to do. You know, when you're standing, you know, and at a at a no prep race and you see one of the guys from Street Outlaws standing up on the starting line behind his, you know, friend's car and pair of flippy flops and shorts, that's uh <laughs> That 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 ain't gonna. That's not happening at the Gator Nationals, right? No, that that ain't gonna fly. They're gonna politely tell you to get the hell out, and and probably by when I say that, there's gonna be other words used in there as well, and probably a stiff shove. But again, it it takes it's different strokes for different folks. Hundred percent. Well, Luke, our time here is coming to an end, and I like to give my guests there, of course, there. their the, the signature ability to do their best john force impersonation plug sponsors thank sponsors thank their mom thank their dog whoever you want to talk about so uh, i will uh turn the keys of the kingdom over to you and let you uh let you do your thing sure yeah no i mean obviously you can uh, you can find us follow me on this is bracket racing.com uh, we're also on social media luke bogacki motorsports on facebook this is bracket racing on facebook or uh, i believe i'm just at luke bogacki on twitter uh, and through those like we highlight a lot of the the marketing partners involved with our race team but you can just rest assured that Basically, any decal that you see on the side of our car is there for a reason, and it's not because we get a deal on those products. It's because I think that those are the best products available to do the job that we need to do. So, It ain't on there because it came in the box, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, Luke, thank you for your time once again, and uh, look forward to see you at the track this year. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up the show for this week. Thanks to Luke for stopping by. And as always, may your action times be crisp and your wind lights bright. Until next week, folks.